thank you so much for being here today. And if you are in our overflow room or watching online, let me welcome you as well. And thank you for being here. As you can see, we are continuing a series we started last week called Friction on how to navigate a relational conflict. And if you were here last week, you know that I talked about the fact that we live in a culture that seems right now to be in a grace deficit. Just with everything our nation has experienced over the last 12 months, uh, between COVID and the quarantine and a very difficult presidential election and the uncertain economy and all the protests and the riots, it just seems that everyone is on edge. There's friction just below the surface of every conversation that, that people are ready to be offended, just waiting for you to say something wrong to offend them so that they can jump and they can attack and they can blast you for whatever it was that you said. It, it just feels like there is a lack of grace in our culture right now. And, and again, if you were here last week, I, I said I don't say this to depress you. I say this because it presents for us a real opportunity as followers of Christ to show grace where there's a lack of grace. To show love where there's a lack of love. To be peacemakers in a culture where there is a whole lot of friction going on. And so last week we talked about rethinking our role in conflict. When there is some kind of relational conflict, when there is friction between us and someone else, we need to rethink our part. What role did we have in that conflict? And last week... We looked at a very short passage found in the New Testament book of James. And in that passage, James asks and answers the question, What causes fights among you? Why do you have friction? Why is there in your life relational conflict? And the answer that James gave was this. It's because of you. It's because you want what you want. You have desires, and when those wants aren't met, when those desires are not met, then you attack the person who has gotten in the way of you getting what you want. And James says, the reason you have conflict is because of you. And so last week we talked about how we are naturally selfish, and we all have a default response when we feel attacked in some way, it is either to attack back or to escape and flee the situation. Both of those are ways that we try to use to get what we want. And so James says, reject that default response and instead choose to react the way that God would have you to react. And so that's what we're talking about this week. You can see on the slide, we're talking about reevaluating our response when we feel hurt, when we feel attacked some way. Uh, and we are going to look at a brief passage found in the New Testament book of Romans. If you've got a Bible with you and you want to turn to Romans chapter 12, uh, Romans is just after Acts, it's right before 1 Corinthians. And just to give you a little backstory on the passage that we're going to read today, in 49 AD, Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. Uh, the reason that Paul, uh, Claudius, 
uh, kicked all the Jews out of Rome is not found in the New Testament, but the fact that he did so is. If you look at Acts 18, we read uh, these words. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, that's Emperor Claudius, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So why did the emperor remove all of the Jews out of the city of Rome? Well, we don't find it in the New Testament, but when we look to other history sources, we find out why. Suetonius was a Roman historian who lived just a few decades after Paul, and he wrote a history on all of the Caesars who had lived up until that point in his life. And in his section on Claudius, here's what he said. Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, the emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. Now here, Suetonius, this Roman historian, does not describe Crestus. And there are no famous Crestuses at this point in history. Most historians believe that this is a reference to Christ. That Crestus was Jesus. And so the Jews in Rome had fights over Jesus. Why did they have fights over Jesus? Well, remember, the first Christians were Jewish. There were other Jews who were not Christians. And in the tightly knit Jewish community that existed in Rome, there were disagreements over whether or not Jesus was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah. And so in the synagogues, there were debates. And in people's homes, they would fight over this, uh, over Jesus, over whether or not he was the Christ. In businesses, they would fight. And evidently, the fighting was so bad, the disagreements were so strong, the friction was so much that it spilled out into the streets. And it caused disruptions in Rome to the point that Claudius said, I don't care who's right and who's wrong. I'm kicking you all out of the city. Now, if you're a parent, you understand this reaction of Claudius. You know, the kids come, and there's a fight, and they want you to mediate the fight, and they give their side, and they give their side, and you say, I don't care. I want all of you out of the house right now. Just leave. That's what Claudius did. The fighting was so intense that he ordered all of the Jews to leave the city of Rome. Then, in 54 AD, Claudius died. And after he died, Nero, the emperor who succeeded Claudius, did not... Uh, keep this decree. And so the Jews were allowed to return to Rome. But here's what happened. Those who were Jewish Christians returned to a church that was much different than the church they had left. At this point, the church was dominated by Greeks and Romans, or or who the Bible calls Gentiles, non-Jewish individuals. So these Jewish Christians who founded the church in Rome, they were the ones who were the leaders in the church in Rome. They're kicked out of the city. They return to their church, and everything has changed. They're no longer in leadership roles. The Gentiles have been running everything, and 
running everything just fine. Thank you very much. We don't need you to step back into your leadership roles. And now the Jews were the minority in the church. The church in Rome was largely a Gentile church. And so they come back and there is all this friction between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in the church. As well, at this point, they were experiencing persecution from those outside the church, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, from a culture that said, we can't believe that you're worshiping a God who died on a criminal's cross. That doesn't make sense. And so the culture around the church basically persecuted these people they thought were strange for worshiping this God who had been placed on a cross like a criminal. So then fast forward a few years, and Paul was in Corinth and writes a letter to the church in Rome, around 56 or 57 A.D. And Paul understood for the Christians in the church, they were facing a lot of friction, both within the church and when they left the church and went out into the world. No matter where they were, there was a lot of relational conflict. And so in chapter 12, Paul deals specifically with how to address relational conflict in your life. Again, if you've got a Bible, Romans chapter 12, we're going to see several things that Paul says here in this passage. Number one, how to respond when when offended. The first thing to do is to bless, not to curse. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now this is hard. Our natural reflexive response when someone hurts us, when someone attacks us, when someone curses us, what do we naturally want to do? Attack back, hurt back, curse back. We want to attack them in the same way that they attacked us, uh, plus 10%. Plus just a little bit more. You know, to teach them a lesson. To make sure they understand, don't mess with me. You know, if you attack me at a level 2, I'm going to come at you at a level 3 just to make sure that you understand that you really hurt me and you better not do it again. If you're a fan of Major League Baseball, you know that it is a sport that generally moves pretty slowly. Not like football and basketball. Baseball sort of just moves at a very relaxed pace. It's why it's played in the summer. It moves at a summer pace. When you watch it on TV, even the announcers, everything's very chill, very conversational, very casual. In fact, it moves so slow that the announcers on a baseball game have to come up with a lot of material to talk about that has nothing to do with the game. If you're a fan, you've ever watched the game, you understand exactly how this works. The announcers will say, well, Dansby Swanson comes up to bat. Dansby's two for two tonight with a single and a double. Takes the first pitch, ball outside. You know, Dansby bought a large house on Lake Lanier this past year. <laughs> Reportedly, he really likes to water ski. and He and his girlfriend like to water ski in the offseason. Ball two inside. I don't understand how he water skis in the offseason. It's cold in the offseason. Well, that, yeah, that doesn't make sense. You know, ball three. And the conversation just goes on 
and at all just at a very relaxed pace. If you're ever stressed out in life, just turn on a baseball game. It'll relax you. Even when you go to the park where there is more excitement than watching it at home, just because you, you have all these fans and you're watching live, it's still pretty relaxed. You know, fairly slow. If you want to go get a hot dog, go get a hot dog. You're not going to miss much. You know, a few balls, a few strikes, occasionally a home run, occasionally some excitement. But most of the time, you're okay. Except there are a few times in baseball games where it gets really exciting. Now, you've seen this before. If you're a fan of baseball, it normally begins when there is bad blood between the two teams. You know, they're, they're neck and neck in the standings, or there have been some things that have been said to the media about each of the teams, and they, there's some tension that's there. There is friction when they take the field. And so one team's batting, the other team's in the field, and the pitcher decides to throw a pitch that's a little high and inside. Call it chin music. Backs the, backs the batter up. Well, the batter doesn't do anything, but he sort of glares at the pitcher. Then the second half of the inning, that pitcher decides to do the same thing to their team, but he misses his target and hits the batter. You know what happens when he hits the batter? The batter drops his bat and he chases the mound, which I've never understood. If you're going into a fight, why do you drop the bat first? If you have a choice in a fight between having a bat and not having a bat, you're going to choose to have a bat. I never understood why they dropped the bat to go into the fight. I'm just kidding. I know why. Don't send me the email. If they go to the mound with the bat, they're thrown out of baseball forever. So I know why they dropped the bat. So they charge the mound. Well, when they, they charge the mound, the first base runner sees this happening. and He comes over to help his teammate. But the first baseman sees that runner going over, and he thinks he's going to attack the pitcher, so he tackles him. Well, then the catcher gets involved, and the left fielder comes in, and pretty soon both benches have cleared, and the announcers have something else to talk about besides skiing in the offseason because now it's an all-out brawl on the field. If you've ever seen one of these, you know exactly what happens. It starts at a level one, and then it escalates to level two, and then level three. And pretty soon, it's a ten where everyone is fighting. Paul here says, when you're offended, when someone has persecuted you, instead of escalating the tension and the friction, you need to reevaluate that response and instead de-escalate the tension. When someone hurts you, instead of hurting them, bless them. When someone curses you, instead of cursing them, bless them. Now, how do we do that? Let me give you several things here to consider. When someone has hurt us in some way, the first way that we can bless them is is by speaking kindly to them. Again, someone comes at you with some kind of attack, and it's at a level one. We want to up the volume, we want to take it up a notch, and we want to attack them at a level two. Paul here says, instead of doing that, go down to a zero. Speak kindly to them. It is not our natural reflexive response. However, it will immediately de-escalate the situation. Our cathedral coffee manager is a guy named Jacob Faircloth who is in our church. Uh, I'm not sure if he's in here right now, but he met with our deacons this past week. 
and just talked about the ministry of, of our coffee shop. And in that, he talked about this phrase that he gives to his employees all the time. The phrase is this, love covers a multitude of sins. It's from 1 Peter 4, 8. The principle behind that phrase is this. When you speak kindly to others, when you show love where there is a lack of love, when you show grace to others, then that will cover a lot of other mistakes. And so he says to his employees, if someone has to wait a little longer for their coffee, but you've spoke kindly to them the entire time, if we get the order wrong, but you have been gracious and loving in your speech to them, they are far more likely to not get upset over those things just because of the words that you have used. We can immediately have a situation de-escalate when we will choose to speak kindly to someone who has spoken harshly to us. All right, number two, not only speak kindly to them, but secondly, we can bless them by speaking kindly of them. When you've had a conflict with someone, the temptation is to go to everyone else and tell everyone who will listen why that person that you had a conflict with is an absolute jerk. Now, you want to say to everyone, you know what, let me tell you about Joey. Here's why Joey has no friends. Joey is a jerk. And let me tell you what Joey did to me. And you don't need to be friends with Joey. And you want to get everybody on your side. And you want to gossip as much as you can to attack them because they've hurt you. If we will refrain from doing that, and instead of speaking hateful words about them, speak kind words about them to others, it will change the situation. When someone who has hurt you, when someone who is your enemy, hears that when you talk about them, it's glowing praise, it will change that relationship. Now, if you're in here right now and you're not uh, a follower of Christ, you're fairly new to church, you get a pass. I'm going to let you not listen for just a moment. But all of you who follow Christ, if you've been in church for a while, you need to listen to me. Because as Christians, there are a couple of things that we do to get around the whole not gossiping thing. The first thing that we tend to do is that we take gossip and we call them prayer requests. <laughs> and so we'll get in a group in the church, a Bible study or one of your small groups, and we'll say, you know, we need to pray for Joey. Well, why do we need to pray for Joey? Because Joey has no friends. Well, why doesn't Joey have any friends? Because Joey's a jerk. Let me tell you what Joey did. We need to pray for Joey that he'll understand just what a jerk he is. And we gossip, but we spiritualize it by calling it prayer request. So quit doing that. If you really have this heart for Joey, then just say, I want to pray for my friend Joey. If someone asks why, say it's unspoken. And then everyone wonders, what's wrong with Joey when you say that? <laughs> the second thing that Christians do, and this is, this is bad is we will use this little phrase, bless his heart, and we think that it gives us a pass to pretty much say whatever we want about anybody. Bless his heart, Joey is a jerk and has no friends, and I don't know what to do about Joey, but bless his heart. As long as we say bless his heart, we can gossip as much as we want to. So if you're a follower of Christ, resist 
gossiping, but putting it in spiritual terms like this. Okay, if you're not a Christian, if you're kind of new to church, now you've got to tune back in. If someone who hurts you hears that you're speaking about them in a way that is really great, it will change the relationship and it will make the friction go away. Number three, speak prayerfully about them. If there is someone who has hurt you, if you have an enemy, and you will take that name before God on a daily basis, it will not only change their heart, it will change your heart as well. I have found in my life, it is hard to stay mad at someone that I'm praying for every day. In fact, after about a week, it's almost impossible to remain mad at someone if I've been praying for them. So speak kindly to them, speak kindly of them, and speak prayerfully about them. Okay, the second thing is we bless and don't curse. The second thing that Paul says to do is to sympathize with their situation. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So Paul here says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. In other words, put yourself in their shoes. Try to understand their situation. Why did they say this thing to you? Why did they do this thing? Why did they hurt you in this way? Most of the time, we have no idea what's going on in the life of someone else. We just don't know. And when they were short with us, when they, when they said this thing they shouldn't have said, what we don't know is their home life is a wreck. Or what we don't know is at their job, they are miserable and they are just getting pounded by a boss every single day. What we may not know is they have just come from the doctor and got news that they did not want to hear. And so Paul here says, try for just a moment, just a moment to put yourself in their shoes. Try to sympathize with them. Try to imagine that you're experiencing what they're experiencing. And to do this, Paul says, you have to keep your pride in check. You see, pride will not allow you to sympathize with someone else. Pride says, I don't care what you're facing. I don't care what your work life is like. I don't care what your home life is like. I don't care if your wife yelled at you today. I don't care about your kids. I don't care about any of that. All I care about is the fact that you hurt me. And I'm going to get you back. Paul says you've got to keep pride in check in order to be able to sympathize with others. Now, I'm going to give you a quick quiz here. So you can know if you're struggling with the whole pride thing. In the last 10 or 15 minutes since I started preaching, how many of you, if you're married, how many of you would admit that you're really glad that I'm talking on this topic for your spouse? That you're so glad your spouse is here, or you so wish your spouse were here so they could hear this talk? Is anyone willing to admit that? Husbands, you are so wise to not raise your hand if your spouse is here with you. Well, none of you will admit it, but if you've had that thought at all, you're having difficulty keeping pride in check. All of us do. Paul here says, do not be proud. Be willing to mourn. Be willing to rejoice. Be willing to sympathize with the needs of others.
And number three, only take responsibility for you. Verse 17, do not repay anyone for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There are two key phrases here in this verse. Paul says, one, if it is possible, and number two, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, sometimes it's just not possible. The other individual is not willing to budge. They're not willing to do anything to make peace. However, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. You do your part, whatever that part is, and then you can rest your head on your pillow at night knowing that you've done everything that you can do to keep peace in the situation. However, you only need to take responsibility for your part, not the actions of others. A couple of years ago, a guy who was in a former church of mine called me, and he was facing a number of issues. Uh, one of those was that his parents were divorcing. Uh, he, he's an adult at this point in his life, and seeing his parents go through this was just tearing him up, and he was feeling all sorts of guilt and responsibility, and should I do this, and what have I done wrong, and, and going through all of those questions. And at some point in the conversation, I had to stop him and say, you can only control you, not them. You can't make decisions for them. You can only do your part. As far as it depends on you, do what you're supposed to do. But don't carry around the guilt for what they have done or what they have not done. You can only be responsible for you. Now, parents, I know this is hard. We, we want to see our kids do well in life. We want to see them make the right decisions. We want to see them you know, make wise choices in life. And when they fail, we feel guilt. Uh, and, and granted, we need to do what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to provide the right boundaries and nurture and train and all of those things. But there comes a point that we have to let them make decisions for themselves. And they are little sinners and they will at times make sinful decisions. And that's not on us. As hard as it is to resist that temptation to take on all the guilt for the decisions they have made, we can only take responsibility for us. As far as it depends on us, we need to do everything that we're supposed to do. Then beyond that, they are responsible for their own decisions. In the history of the world, there has only been one perfect parent. And in Genesis chapter 3, we, we read about the fact that his children rebelled against him and made a really bad decision, a very sinful decision. Now, if God, the one perfect parent, had children who made sinful choices, then we should expect the same. We can only take responsibility for us. So again, as far as it depends on you, do your part is if it's possible, live at peace with everyone. But beyond that, only take responsibility for your actions. 
Number four, so bless, don't curse, sympathize with their situation, only take responsibility for you. And number four, leave room for God. Look at verse 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So in this section, Paul references two Old Testament passages. One comes from Proverbs chapter 25, and it reads this way. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That phrase, heat burning coals on his head, was borrowed from an Egyptian practice where someone who felt sorry for something they had done would literally take burning coals, place those coals in a pot, they would put the pot on their head, and they would walk around as a sign of their repentance for what they had done. Paul here says, when someone hurts you, the best thing you can do is turn around and bless them. When you have an enemy, then give them something to eat. When someone has hurt you in some way and they are thirsty, give them something to drink. What will this do? It will drive them to repentance. They will feel badly about what they have done and how they have hurt you and the things that they have said. And when you bless them, it will drive them to the point of sorrow. So one thing is just to keep that in mind, the best way to get at your enemy to make them feel badly is to be so nice to them that they just can't stand it and they feel badly about the way they've treated you the second thing is this reference that paul makes at the beginning of this passage to deuteronomy 32 the passage that reads it is mine to avenge i will repay here's what paul is saying When you and I face conflict in a situation, when there's friction, where someone has hurt us, we want to get them back because we want justice. You know, if we've been hurt, we want to make sure they pay for what they have done because we have this sense of justice within us, at least when it comes to other people, not necessarily with us, but when someone else has done something wrong, we think that they deserve to be punished for what they have done. And here's what Paul is saying in this passage. We think we know the whole situation, but we really don't. However, God understands every detail, every aspect, everything that's going on of the situation. So when the person says a harsh word to you, when they do something to you, God understands if they did that because they've been hurt by others, if they did that because something's going wrong at home or something's going wrong at work, if they did that and really didn't mean it like it sounded, God understands all of that. And the God who is a God of justice will make things right. Now, here's, here's what I think we, we do, and I can't point you to Scripture on this, but here's what I think happens so many times. We have a conflict with someone. They've hurt us in some way. Um, They've said something about us. They've said something to us. We have this conflict, and we think, I'm going to get revenge. I'm going to make them pay for what they've done. And so we do whatever it is that we're going to do to get them back. 
And the whole time, God is watching this situation, and God says, okay, I'll get out of the way. You're, you're wanting to get revenge, then, then I'll just get out of the situation. And we get revenge, and God says, well, man, I would have done a lot worse to him than that. You know, that's it? Oh, man, I was, I was getting ready to really smite them. And you just kind of did a little thing there, but, man, I, I, was, I was really going to make them pay. But since you decided to take matters into your own hands, I, I, I'm just done with the situation. And Paul here says, look, God is a God of justice. And God, if your enemy has really hurt you, understand this. God will deal with them. So here's what I want you to do. Last week, we looked at this very short verse where Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I want us as a church, I want you, I want all of us to experience whatever blessings it is that Jesus is referring to there. Blessed are the peacemakers. I want those blessings on my life. So here's what I want us to try. For the next week, just one week, seven days, here's what I want you to do. I want you to live out in every relationship as best you can the advice that Paul gave here. When someone cuts you off in traffic, don't lay on the horn and, you know, give them a sign that says you think they're number one, anything like that. (laughs) You know, just calmly back off, calm down, turn on the radio, try to find a baseball game. It'll do it. If someone says something to you at work and they just snap right at you, reply with kind words. When you get the heated email, send them an email back that's, that's just you know, so kind and that you are so sorry and you'll do whatever it takes to make it right. If, if you hear that someone has gossiped about you, then go around and say the most positive things about them that you can. For one week, here's what I want us to do. I want us to live out what Paul taught here. And then after a week to look and to see what's happened in our lives and to see if the words of Jesus are true. Have we been blessed in life because we're responding to our spouse, to our kids, to our employer, to wherever it is with kind words, blessing them, not cursing them, praying for them, doing all of those things for one week. Let's see what happens and see if our lives aren't blessed as a result.